The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> so today's the day that I'll continue giving a series of talks that I'll be giving once a month on the paramis, the perfections. And these are ten qualities of character that are that are cultivated and developed in the course of Buddhist practice and which in turn support Buddhist practice. Or more specifically, since the word concept Buddhist practice is an abstraction, um, it supports uh, the practice of liberation, of freedom, and it also supports the practice or the expression of compassion. And I find it quite beautiful that these ten qualities uh, support both freedom and compassion. And uh, the, the ideal is that uh, the movement and the practice of liberation goes hand in hand with the practice or the expression of compassion in this world. And so that your liberation, your freedom of your heart, the freedom from suffering, freedom from clinging and attachment, uh, is not something we do only for ourselves, but it's directly connected to... Um, uh, being of service, of benefit to the world around us one way or the other, um, in small ways or big ways, depending on what's appropriate for us. And uh, these ten qualities, uh, these are called paramis, <coughs> and sometimes in, in English they're called perfections. The word parami means something like ultimate, um, and um, that which is ultimate, or that which is connected to the ultimate purpose of life, or the ultimate possibility, the upper reaches of, of what a spiritual life can be about. It might be interesting to consider uh, or recognize that these ten qualities of characters are powers. And uh, not just practices, but they're powers, they're qualities that become powerful or strong within us. And as they become powerful, they support us they, uh, in, in engagement in our life. Um, sometimes uh, unselfconsciously, because once the power of strength is there, it's just there for us, and it's there supporting us what we're doing. And they can be very strong powers um, that, um, that uh, even in tr- during times of tremendous uh, crisis or challenge or difficulty, uh, where we don't think we know what to do, these powers are there to support us and carry us through. And so building up these Strengths is one of the uh, beautiful things to do because you don't know when you'll need them. And uh, it could be that uh, you don't even know what great challenges your life will face. I'm struck, uh, you know, I'm reading every day now what's going on in the Middle East and I think most of the people there had no idea that they were going to face this level of crisis and and, uh, respond to it in some way and there's been tremendous expressions of strength and power beautiful strength and power through a lot of uh, people on the streets that uh, they probably never thought that they would express that in their lives. So who knows what we'll be asked to do. <clears throat> so the, today, the parami, the perfection, uh, is truth, truthfulness. And truth is often seen as a power. And uh, truthfulness, the dedication, the, the love of truth, dedication to truth, is something that lives in some people so powerfully you can feel it in them. Uh, and uh, part of that power is this inability to be untruthful. They might not be sh- always sure what truth is, but, uh, but uh, the, the dedication to truth 
It takes a form of unwillingness to be untruthful, to deceive or to lie or to hide. And it's quite beautiful, I feel, when, uh, when people confess in the right way. And I think maybe there's unfortunate kind of confession. <clears throat> people who confess too much. <clears throat> Give us a break. <clears throat> but um, then there's people who don't confess enough. Uh, the word confess means with faith in Latin, I think. And uh, so it's connected to faith, faithfulness. Um, and, um, and, uh, uh, but to, to not be willing to have other people believe that you're different than who you are, or to say something that is a misrepresentation of what's true, and then to, uh, there can be a powerful unwillingness to let that continue going out there, to let that continue someone have that misunderstanding. And I've had people come to me um, <clears throat> and say, you know, Gil, you know, I said something before that I want to tell you. It's not the way, actually the way it is. And I want to tell you, I want to make amends, I want to confess. And sometimes it's been very small things. Sometimes in my role as a Buddhist teacher, this happens on retreats. And meditation retreats is a, a place where people are, have a heightened sensitivity to the inadequacy or the suffering or the, or the transgression to the, in our own hearts of having said something, maybe even, even unintentionally, which somehow is deceptive or doesn't really represent the truth. And it builds up a kind of pressure inside a person. I just, you know, I have to correct for this. I can't let you continue believing what I said because what I said wasn't true. On retreat, sometimes I'm amazed how small the, the issue is <laughs> that people come and tell me, you know. <clears throat> um, and, uh, but it's so beautiful, they do, that, uh, that they want to they be clean. They want to not live with this kind of pressure or this feeling of transgression or feeling of something is off. To clean up uh, our relationship to other people. So there's, you know, in some ways the power of truth is operating. It becomes more sensitive, more powerful in certain settings. Retreat settings is one place. Meditation is a place where it has to become powerful. Uh, because meditation practice, mindfulness practice, is a practice of truth. There is no meditation, there is no mindfulness practice without a dedication to being truthful. Mindfulness is seeing clearly what is going on. Uh, being present for what's going on without deception, without ignoring, without denying, without pushing it away, but really sh- uh, showing up and facing what is happening here. Sometimes that's easy. It's easy perhaps when we think that spirituality is about um, uh, bliss and peace. and you know, oh, I'll show up for that. But I think that um, most Buddhists, maybe that's true for other people's spirituality, but for Buddhist practice, it's, uh, Buddhist practice has, a lot to, has something to do with joy and peace, certainly. But the practice itself has a lot to do with being honest and facing what stands in the way of our peace, what stands in the way of our joy. <clears throat> in some ways, in fact, practice, really, Buddhist practice has a lot to do when, when our practice is not working. If practice always worked... <clears throat> just like we want it to work. <laughs> I, I don't think there'd be really any practice at all. We all have this, we sit down, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to be a good meditator, I'm going to sit down and 
get concentrated and enter into bliss and it'll be happier ever after. I mean, we all want that, right? <coughs> to some degree. But if that was the case, it wouldn't do us any good. And it's useful to think about that uh, um, why practice is so effective and so powerful and so meaningful is because most of the time it doesn't work. <laughs> and it's when it doesn't work that the practice begins. It's because it doesn't work that we practice. And so don't be discouraged, any of you. I know some of you occasionally consider maybe it doesn't work so well. Don't be discouraged. That's the time it really begins. That's really the time when it's what it's all about. Then turn around and be honest and look and be present and learn from that. Sometimes the process of self-honesty is not an easy process to come to. But it's necessary for this practice of mindfulness. When, when sometimes I've given talks on being truthful, people very quickly associated with being honest in our conversations with other people. And you know, it's it's you know, it's good to be honest. It's important to be honest. Uh, but sometimes people interpret that to mean, let me tell you everything I think, and spare the world, please. <clears throat> you know, that's you know, if you if I told you everything I thought, I mean. <laughs> I'd get bored. The, um, um, and then people, people often ask, well, what about, am I supposed to always be truthful, honest, tell everyone everything? What about, and they give these extreme examples like they do in philosophy classes. You know, what about if the Nazis are coming to your house and you're hiding someone and they ask, you know, are they hiding in your house? What do you do then? So people ask those questions. We're not going to go there today. <laughs> but there might be a time when it's not appropriate to be, to say the truth to someone. Maybe. But a categorical, absolute truth in Buddhism, Buddhist practice, is that it's never, ever okay to lie to yourself. Ever. Because then there's no practice. The practice is connecting to what is really happening and seeing it directly for what it is, seeing the truth. But then you might ask, well, what is the truth? So, uh, we, we taught this day along last Friday on truth. We had a whole day on truth. Two people at the end of the day said they were more confused than they were at the beginning of the day. <laughs> you know, what's the truth? How do I know what the truth, what's true? Um, <clears throat> Almost always, we're in relationship to things. And we're in relationship to things to the degree to which we understand those things. Or don't, there's some kind of understanding there. Even if we're confused, it's a confused understanding. And the way we form our relationship to our experience, to whatever's going on, is based on our mind's best ability to understand that situation. And so then we either we can cling to things, or we could be generous, or we could... Uh, be loving, or we can be hateful, but we, we ba- base it on how we understand what's happening. How we understand what's happening may or may not be accurate, but we don't have to necessarily understand what is ultimately true. What we need to understand first and foremost is how we're relating to what's happening. 
and we're relating to, we, we have enough understanding to relate to it. So if you're in a, in a social situation with someone and you're trying to understand what's really true, what's going on, and you can't, then what you could say truthfully in that situation would be, I'm confused. Or it, uh, or it might be useful to say something else about how you're feeling. You know, this is difficult for me right now. Just saying it's difficult. This is difficult for me. There's a variety of things you could say that are truthful enough about your relationship, how it is for you, that maybe clarifies the situation, maybe um, helps everyone to understand one piece of the puzzle that's a necessary piece of the puzzle. You don't necessarily have to understand what is ultimately true about the situation, but you have to understand how you're relating to it. And then understand how to be wise about that. Sometimes you want to share it with other people. Sometimes you certainly want to share it with yourself. Sometimes what maybe it means is that you have to turn around and really face some aspect of yourself that's difficult to face. Something that you've long ignored. One of the exercises we did on uh, Friday, <coughs> this day long on truth that we did here, uh, which I'll tell you is a recommendation that maybe some of you want to do. It was an exercise that some people engaged in quite powerfully. Some people were lucky enough that they didn't really actually, you know, didn't feel like they had anything to write as far as a writing exercise. The exercise was, um, we spent about 15 minutes in silence here in this room, and uh, people had to write down for themselves only what were the things that they were reluctant to admit to themselves. What were the things they were reluctant to face and be honest about? And that's an interesting question. So what are, are, there, are there anything that you, any of you, are reluctant to admit to yourself? Reluctant to face, to look at. So you know, so I so I, I didn't write it down myself, but I was I was, um, you know, I kind of did it in my mind as we were sitting there, <clears throat> and um, and I was a little bit surprised what came to my mind. It was kind of interesting. It was um, the um, I was reluctant to admit that I'm worried about this retreat center we're buying. <laughs> 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 oh, <laughs> you know, it's a big deal. <clears throat> so I could see it. You know, I, I had been actually kind of not quite willing to admit, oh, this is a big deal. So, <laughs> there you have it. I don't know if you wanted my confession. <laughs> so, like having an airline pilot confess, he's a little nervous about this. Yeah. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably not the thing to have confessed before starting a fundraising drive. <laughs> So being truthful is a very important part of Buddhist practice. And one of the, one of the qualities, one of the, one of the uh, kind of qualities of growth in maturity in Buddhist practice that I like to see in people is that people grow in their trust of truth. They grow in the trustfulness of being truthful. But they also learn how to be wise about talking about what's true. And so for the Buddha, it was very important for the Buddha, the practice of truth. 
So much so that he sometimes criticized his disciples if they weren't truthful. Um, and, uh, and specifically, he was critical, not so much that people were lying, uh, but that when people talked about things, his students talked about things, they didn't know for themselves. When they made statements that they couldn't really know for sure. And uh, sometimes they made, their stu- students would make statements about the Buddha, and the Buddha said, look, you can't know that for sure. You shouldn't be saying that. And um, even if it was true, you shouldn't say it unless you really know it for yourself. And so the Buddha talked about a practice of co- co- that it was, it's called preserving the truth or safeguarding the truth. And this involves being very careful in what you say. So what you say is truthful. So if you hear something that you don't know is true for yourself, you don't repeat it as if it's true. You safeguard the truth if you say, I have heard X, Y, and Z. So if, like in spiritual world, if, if, um, if you know, if you hear some beautiful, grand statement about nirvana, and you go around, you know, saying, this is what nirvana is, but you've never experienced yourself, then you're not being truthful. What you want to do is you want to be careful what you say, and you say, what I've read, what I've heard in Buddhism is nirvana is this. So that's safeguarding the truth. So a lot of it has to do with understanding where the source of your information comes from, source of your understanding comes from. Saying, oh, I've read. From what I've read, this is how it is. From what I've heard, this is how it is. Or, I had one experience once, and based on that experience, I've generalized. And this is how I've generalized. As opposed to saying, this is how it is always. You say, I've generalized. Then you're kind of preserving the truth. Then people know that there's a kind of, you're kind of holding a little bit loosely. There's other possibilities. So to be, be careful with how we say things, to actually know the kind of statement we're making and be upfront about it. This is a generalization. This is a guess. This is what I've heard. This is my operating assumption. This is the tenet I'm, I'm, based, I'm, I'm operating it on. Um, you know, so we, people know where you're coming from and why and know how you're holding it, know the source of it. Too often in life, people make absolute claims. This is how things are. And those absolute claims are not based on real first-hand experience. Buddhism also challenges us to be very careful about what we call experience. People often say, well, it's my experience, so therefore it must be true. Uh, and Buddhism has had a long history of, uh, uh, of kind of analyzing what we call experience to point out that often what we experience, um, we experience things through the filter of our interpretations, our generalizations. And we have to be very careful not to give absolute authority to what we call experience without teasing apart what, what we actually think experience is because of this role of interpretation, of bias, of uh, 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 cultural and personal concepts we bring along to interpret the situation. One of my favorite stories that uh, I think was meant to be kind of Buddhist humor back in the time of the Buddha is um, uh, about the mistake that God made, how, how God made a mistake to think that he was the creator. <laughs> 
So that's a kind of... Anyway, it's, so, it, <laughs> so I'll tell you the story. So um, uh, now this, isn't, this is not the creator in the, in the Judeo-Christian Bible, so we don't, you know, we're putting that aside. I don't know anything about that world at all. So, but this is, has to do with um, uh, ancient India. They believed uh, in the pantheon of gods, kind of the Zeus of the pantheon was a god named Brahma. And apparently sometimes Brahma thought he was the creator of the world. And uh, so, uh, so the Buddha said, you know, it's really a misunderstanding on his part. <laughs> what happened, I don't know why the Buddha knew this, but this, he said, what happened was that long ago, back in mythological times or in ancient, you know, cosmological times, before there was any physical matter in the universe, there was just these ethereal uh, formless spirits, beings, minds. And, um, and as is the nature of the universe, it goes through this expansion and contraction periods. It's a yo-yo theory of the universe that Buddhism believes in, historically. So when it's most expanded, there's no physical material in the world. There's just these disembodied spirits. But as it gets contracted, it becomes more solidified. It's just a natural process of expansion and contraction. And so at some point at the far ex- uh, level of expansion, when there's just ex- ethereal beings, no, no physical matter in the universe, the contraction started. And, um, and so in that period of contraction, one of the more or less material things that first started to get formed was uh, the heavenly realms of Brahma, his, his heaven where he lives and his throne and his palace and everything. And uh, then um, once that was created, as part of this period of contraction, this, one of these ethereal beings died and as an ethereal being. It was reborn as Brahma in his palace, in his throne. So Brahma was sitting there, looking around. There's no one there. And after, after maybe a while, he got lonely. And he thought, wouldn't it be nice if there were some other beings here? Now, it just happened to be a coincidence that when he had that thought was just when the universe was contracting a little bit more. And so, in fact, some beings got reborn in his realm. And he thought there was a connection between him thinking that and and having those beings born. He said, oh, I created those beings. I'm responsible. Um, uh, But that's an example where Brahma made a conclusion based on inadequate information. He just saw these beings appear and he, and he saw his thought and he made the conclusion, I was responsible. So that's, I think, Buddhist humor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, making fun of some of the beliefs in the old, old India, at least. At least. <laughs> so what is it about the, in, our, in our experience? So people have near-death experiences. And some of them are very convincing when people see things. And any, these near-death experiences, really, we're seeing something that's really existentially real. Or are we seeing something which is projection of our mind? When people have out-of-the-body experiences, which can seem very real in and of themselves, now they're finding out that you can take certain drugs and you can have out-of-the-body experiences. Is the consciousness really leaving the body? Or is it something to do with how the brain Creates, creates a sense of location that is shifted and changed by the drugs or shifted and changed by, by what goes on physiologically as you're near death. 
<clears throat> people are very quick sometimes to jump, saying, this is my real experience. When it's, you know, <clears throat> it's a kind of an interpretation, it's kind of, it's an experience, but is it really an accurate representation of what's happening? So <clears throat> Buddhism has a long history of being very careful with this kind of thing. And so to not validate experience automatically, but to investigate more deeply and to understand how we relate to experience. Remember, how we relate to something is what's really important. And so it's maybe not so important whether the experience is real. What's most important is how we're relating to it and hold it. <clears throat> so you can say, it's my experience. That'd be safeguarding the truth. But as long as you don't say, this is my truth. Which in the last 15 years or so, 10 years, there's been this phenomenon in the West. I don't know where it came from. Maybe it has genesis in something really wise. But this epidemic thing where people have to go around saying, this is your truth and my truth. and I don't know if truth is that way. It works that way. You can say it's my experience. It's my belief. But as soon as you say it's my truth, it's kind of like the end of the conversation. And it doesn't really help, I think, with the fluidity and the process and the openness that hopefully needs to be there for healthy social process. So one of the things we do with mindfulness practice is we investigate more deeply the nature of experience. And uh, that's one of the great you know, opportunities of mindfulness when your mind gets really concentrated to start teasing apart the fabric or the, 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 the fabric of our experience into its, uh, the threads that make it up. And to see that what we thought was solid is not so solid after all. It's made up of many, many different elements. Some of them have to do with beliefs and interpretations, our relationship, uh, many, many things. And there's a lot of freedom to be found when we start teasing apart uh, what's actually happening uh, beyond the generalizations we tend to make. So it's a power to be truthful. Truthfulness is a power. And uh, you can see that sometimes in conversations with other people, that if they feel that you're dedicated to being truthful, people trust you more likely. And um, as long as you don't use the truth as, an, as a hammer. But uh, the dedication to be truthful, I think, is closely connected to the dedication to be um, compassionate, to be caring, it's connected to um, sincerity and integrity. And if we can have integrity, then we are a gift to other people. People trust us. If people trust us, then they're more willing to be in process and explore what's going on more fully. If people feel like they can't trust us, then they're not going to want to explore what's going on interpersonally and kind of find some kind of path through it. There are many times I find myself in interpersonal challenges of some kind or other or supporting people or involved in something that's quite intense that I don't necessarily know the path through it. But by being honest about what's really happening and making space, making time after that honesty, it's like you find your way, you find your way in the dark or, or, or the light finds you or, be, or something begins to shift and change. And one of the things that shifts and changes that accounts for a lot is people begin to relax. 
if they feel like there's a dedication to being truth, truthful and honest, as opposed to being defensive or offensive or, or hide or something. And that relaxation helps the whole process along quite well. Some of you probably had the experience of someone saying something to you or you realizing something, uh, kind of naming. The expression is, you know, it was named, to name or acknowledge something. And part of you just relaxes. Oh, that's how, oh, that's what, now I understand. That's what it is. Wow. The power of naming or acknowledging. So the practice of mindfulness is to turn around or, or to turn towards what's happening so we can really see it and let it be a fuller acknowledgement of this is how it is. And then perhaps something releases or lets go. So what is it that we have to face? What is it you have to see? What are you reluctant to admit? What are you reluctant to really name and acknowledge for yourself? And it's a wonderful exercise to do um, in the privacy. Some place you go off, have some tea quietly by yourself for a while with a piece of paper or go for a walk in some nice quiet place. And just keep reflecting, what is it that I'm not really admitting? What is it I'm not really willing to acknowledge or look at? Some of you will find nothing because you're lucky enough to be someone who's living quite dedicated to being honest and you know, practice facing things all the time. But some of you will be surprised at what comes up. Sometimes there's long forgotten things or that really you've been ignoring. And sometimes there's good reasons not to be honest or truthful because truth sometimes is disruptive for relationships, for situations in our life that are depending on a certain mistruth or a certain lack of acknowledgement of truth in order to to continue. Some people are quite, you know, to say the truth in some intimate relationship sometimes can challenge the relationship. Now, the dedication to be truthful <coughs> shouldn't exist independent of other dedications. And um, so in Buddhism, dedication to truthfulness is meant to go together with dedication to be kind. Because you can be truthful and unkind. It should also be dedicated to uh, being useful. Uh, you don't want to just be truthful just for the sake of truthfulness. You have to say it because it's useful. And you want to make sure that it's useful the, for the other person. There are times when I've known people who wanted to say the truth because they wanted to get something off their chest. But, it w- but actually, it was going to hurt the people who were told, distress them. And maybe it was, you know, it's not appropriate to tell the truth just to get it off your chest if it's going to cause harm for someone else. So is it useful for everyone concerned? And then the other guideline that Buddhism gives is it timely? It, it might be kind, it might be useful to say something, it might be true, but it might not be the right time. And so you want to be very careful about the timing when there's you know, the right context and situation that allows it to, to be. I think of... Um, if honesty is 
the practice of speaking the truth, I like to define honesty as mindfulness out loud. <clears throat> and the reason I like that is that first, that's what mindfulness is, it's practice of being, tr- being honest or true or recognizing what's actually happening. But it's more than just recognizing what's happening. It's learning to recognize the difference <clears throat> between our interpretation of what's happening and what's happening. And so when we're practicing mindfulness out loud, we're being very careful about that distinction. So that uh, we're not saying uh, this, you know, not, we're, we're actually saying, we're, talk, we're being mindful of what's actually happening. And if we have an interpretation, we see that as an interpretation, and we say that. This is what's happening, and I'm interpreting it this way. There might be other interpretations that are quite appropriate. And finally, um, some time ago I was reading about <clears throat> truth somewhere, and the per- author was um, said this beautiful statement, <clears throat> I thought. The statement was, um, um, the love of truth is more important than the love of self. Isn't that nice? The love of truth is more important than the love of self. And then he went on to say that the self is contained within the truth. But the truth is not contained by the self. So to love the truth, I think it's a beautiful quality. And to love the truth is one of the things that will help and support your Buddhist practice, your practice, your movements towards freedom and your movement towards compassion. I hope that uh, you engage in the discovery of truth and be really patient because truth is a difficult partner to have. Thank you.